Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. Plan for 10x and build for 3x, which is think big, but build for what is needed. As you know, many of the AI companies saw a big, big growth in their space. And the space we operate in, we are offering them the the login capability. So we sit at the front door of their business, you can say, which means we have to scale faster than them so that we are never a blocker. And this time it wasn't planned for 10X and built for 3X. It was build 10X right away and with absolute urgency. Hello and welcome to the Engineering Leadership Podcast brought to you by ELC, the engineering leadership community. I'm Jerry Lee founder of EOC. And I'm Patrick Gallagher, and we're your hosts. Our show shares the most critical perspectives, habits, and examples of great software engineering leaders to help evolve leadership in the tech industry. In this episode, Bhavna Singh, CTO at Okta, deconstructs lessons learned from her experience operating in a high-stakes, high-scale environment. We cover strategies for re-architecting your product roadmap, collaborating with customers, setting up guardrails while scaling, and communicating throughout the prioritization conversation process. Plus, we discuss the principle secure by design and how that process is implemented successfully at Okta. Let me introduce you to Bhavna. Bhavna has worked across multiple high-growth companies to grow and scale platforms from zero to 100-plus million monthly users. She's led global expansion of products and steered multiple acquisitions. As CTO at Okta, Bhavna leads tech strategy and vision for its customer identity product, and Bhavna sits on the advisory board of early-stage startups and VC groups. Enjoy our conversation with Bhavna Singh. It's so wonderful to have you here. I think to set up the conversation for folks listening in, we want to talk about scale. And we also want to deconstruct what it actually means to build for secure by design. So kind of two, two different elements that we'll, we'll talk about. The first thing I wanted to, to dive into from your perspective is scale. Because for a lot of different companies, I think in a, in a really great moment, there, there comes a time when building for scale becomes a mission critical priority, where all of a sudden, like that shift to focus on on scale has to come into focus really strongly. And so I'm really curious about you and your story and what it was like for you to make that shift and for that priority to become important for the companies that you've you've worked at. Can you tell us about that moment? Sure, Patrick. And, and I can speak about the company I currently work for uh, itself. Every company as a technology leader, you know, you always have to have scale or the or business growth in the in the process or in the in the efforts and usually that scale might be 2x sometimes 3x at the max right and and when i joined the company uh, okta as well we we always have this effort of making sure that we are building uh, and scaling. Uh, our mantra for last year was plan for 10x and build for 3x, which is think big, but you know, build for what is needed. And as we finished that work in the last year, great success and team worked really well on that. We felt this year that we are ahead on the scale. We have done a great job, but we have met a lot of big 
you can say expectation. And we have a good headroom to actually focus on a few other things that we had in the roadmap. And we intentionally, or you can say consciously, looking at the business and where the business was going, said this year, we don't have to bring scale again. But that's not how business and market runs, right? Market has its own surprises. As you know, many of the AI companies saw a big, big growth in their space, which is what we were hit in January. And that was a big surprise because the roadmap work was done. And the scale wasn't 3x anymore, which, like I said, you know, usually it's max 3x. They were really unbelievable. And for their own sake, I think, um, they themselves were surprised as to the magnitude with which they were growing. And the space we operate in, we are offering them the, the login capability. So we sit at the front door of their business, you can say, which means we have to scale faster than them so that we are never a blocker. So as we watched that scale, we had to, and I had to shift the, the roadmap of my team and, br and bring scale back. And this time it wasn't built for uh, uh, 3X or planned for 10X and built for 3X. It was build 10X right away and with absolute urgency. And that was a big shift in a moment of like realization for us. I think I would say first quarter solving for scale so that we are ahead in the game. I'm glad that we turned it around. We, we worked and all of those customers are still growing. And uh, we are still there, you can say, uh, login provider, and we have great relationship with each one of them. But you can see how shift in the market, even when we are planning ahead, we are thinking ahead. And, you know, my team, we always have three to four year vision for our engineering roadmap as well, in addition to product. As a leader, you have to kind of uh, be close to the market shifts and, and make sure that you're able to react to it. Because otherwise, we would have not been in partnership with those customers. And of course, they themselves are surprised and, and scrambling around their own scale. So for us to not come and meet them where they need us, that won't be fair. So I'm glad we did all of that. So proud of my team. The, the moment you described of being the front door for these types of companies that are experiencing just massive amounts of usage that was a surprise for them. I'm imagining almost like in track and field, like a sprint and, you know, somebody's running fast, but then you're the person who has to run faster than that person and open up the door as they run through it. And so then like, it seems like there's almost an order of magnitude more complexity because you're trying to race them, but then also intentionally build the door to make sure that they can go through seamlessly and that it's a beautiful experience. Love the analogy, Patrick. Love the analogy. And you're absolutely right. I would say that's the, when I work for the company, that's the, you can say the pride there is that we see many of our customers growing in different ways in different areas, and we meet them where they need us. And that ability to meet them where they need us is the focus that I, I and my team have to make sure that we're always on top of mind. I was wondering if you could tell us about the moment with your teams where you all made the determination that we need to shift back to scale and that it's no longer plan for 10x, build for 3x. This is mission critical to build for 10x plus. What was that moment like making that shift? How did you adjust the priorities with the team when that happened? You know, that, that moment primarily is like, the market shift, the growth, you start to see these companies growing and, and you know, we, we have our metrics to look at. The fun part is, as engineers, solving complex problems is what brings us joy. Not, there was not a moment of like fear or anything. It was more like, oh, wow, so we're going to solve that? You know, there was an excitement. Yes, there was a little bit of unknowns as well, but there was excitement as to, okay, that's the challenge and that's a meaningful challenge and let's get started. The effort goes into, like you said, shifting the roadmap and the priority. And that's what I feel there's certain, you can say, um, a benefit of a sort of structure that we have in the company or I have in my engineering team, which is we have a function called architecture organization. It's a small five to six people organization with really um, experts or 
architects and very senior architects who bring a very deep expertise in certain areas. What it does is it allows us, allows me to shift a certain priority to say, can we start sooner and re-architecting, rethinking of where we want to go as we bring the other roadmap items, you can say, or other folks along as to what needs to be done. Uh, because as you see, when you are bringing some big shift in technology infrastructure, you need to think architecturally. You need to think foundationally as to what are we going to change. It's not a simple feature shift or uh, switching off something or switching on. Now we are talking about something meaningful that's going to shift in how you have built the product or how you are servicing that product. And that means that we need someone who has that expertise to come into the room right away. The reason I called out this, this organization is because it allows us to shift them to say, this is our biggest area, start thinking about it. And as they are bringing the, the, the thoughts together, the write-up together, the thinking together, it gives us time to start creating the, the new roadmap the discussion that we need to have as to where does this sit as a priority, which is what we, we kicked off right off. And it saves some time, you know, it's some parallel work. And what it does also is that as the initial thinking starts, you start to see what will it take to build. So ideation has started. And that gives us much more understanding of how much of impact will it be on the roadmap. The other thing we also do, and, and, I, and that's where I want to uh, say how valuable our customer partnership is, is working closely with, with our customers to understand what are the features that's important, what are the features they don't use, what are the features they can delay, some understanding of what are they using in our product, because our product is, has tons of features, tons of value add, which then gives us understanding of what we can cut in a quick moment to give them that scale and we bring it back later. That partnership makes a big difference as well to move faster. And so of course, we applied both. But again, as I said, it's a momentary thing to figure that out. Once we unlock, we have implemented. We don't have to do that, you know, that all the features are available at that scale. Uh, but it's more like, you know, how do we quickly enable our customers so we are not blocking them while we then take our time to do things at a more generic and scalable way. The elegance in which you, you describe the bringing together the architecture organization to start thinking about like, what does this look like at scale, like from a systems perspective, and then in parallel, starting to design or ideate that roadmap with other teams. And then also in parallel, like beginning the customer conversations to assess like what's important, what can be delayed, and how all those things can kind of stack on top of each other. I think that's really, that's really powerful. I wanted to dive in more about what you're talking about with collaborating with, with customers to help shape that product roadmap and prioritize that product roadmap. Can you share a little bit more about what that looked like and maybe some of the, the ways in which that influenced decisions and choices that you all made? I can share one thing there um, that it helps is, you know, we have multiple API endpoints that allows our customer to use our product in so many ways. There's an aspect of auth authentication, managing that enterprise uh, SaaS space of it as well. And and everything is is hitting an infrastructure, right? And, and when you talk about scale, you want to figure out what will hit the infrastructure more versus what will not. And the other aspect of, of when you are trying to scale, you need to set up an environment where you can test all of that out, which means that you cannot work with a generic test data which is certainly something that we do as part of our load test or release process, which is we certainly, you know, roll out with our all customer data so we know that we are testing out uh, our, our product with every release. But now when you're talking about 10x scale for a few customers, we need to understand what their traffic looks like and make sure that we can come and meet the scale of that traffic shape. For example, you know, for some customers, it's a certain peak in a certain hours. For certain customers, it's a sustained peak. 
for certain customers, it's a certain viral when someone tweets, everybody starts to jump on it, which is more common. Uh, and if you, if you remember, that's what was very common in the AI space lately. So understanding that traffic kind of makeup helps the, the team to understand what should they test for for a certain feature. That's what helps with the customer collaboration, you can say. It's kind of like a surge protection. You know, when you have a viral tweet and suddenly everybody is jumping on that particular customer, you have a surge. It's hard for infrastructure to just react to that surge if it's just like, you know, milliseconds. So how do you make sure that the infrastructure can react to that surge knowing fully that it's going to come down in maybe 30 minutes or something. So understanding that traffic pattern is a, is a very important one as you're designing your architecture for something like a 10x scale. I love the analogy of the surge protection and how, how the traffic pattern shapes and the, the choices that you make for what you're building for. I'm wondering, what were some of the challenges uh, about this moment in making this shift? Were there other, other lessons that became really clear or apparent or other challenges that you all had to work through together? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the most obvious challenge is reprioritization of the work, right? And the value there is to have a deep collaborative relationship with your peers, because then you are less explaining the need or the, the situation, and you're more trying to problem solve it together. And, uh, you know, I'm glad to say that that's what we have in terms of our space and culture, which is we are we're more into problem solving and not questioning as to why did someone not think about it? Because, you know, who could think about the situation? It was It is really unique. And the other aspect of the challenge, uh, apart from prioritization, is also um, bringing people to, uh, along. We're making a big shift. We're making a big change. How will that impact other features, other products, and how will we bring them along? Communication is a, is a very important aspect in every change. This is just one example, but every change, right? How do you create that communication that it becomes a more of a motivating factor and not a, oh, shit moment? So that's very important, which is how do you create this to be not an oh shit moment, but more like, oh, wow, let's work on that problem. That sounds fun. And let's figure this out. The joy of completing that challenge and putting it behind you, which is what we did. I think it just brings the whole team together to say, wow, we did that together and in, in, in a very short moment. It's a moment of pride. And it's certainly for my team, now that we look back, I think it truly brought many of the engineers together and how we reacted to it. The elements that you're highlighting here are so critical to leadership at every level, but especially the more senior you become, the more important that relationships and communication become affecting outcomes. And so I want to go back to what you mentioned about, you know, it's you have to have a great relationship with your peers first. I was wondering if you'd share maybe what contributed to that great relationship before the big moment happened. Like, was there a certain series of conversations that you had ahead of time that helped contribute to like that trust and that relationship? Like what was in place beforehand before the big moment to, to have that great relationship to navigate those challenges? Yeah, that's a very good. And actually, you're right. It's very important. And and I'll say, you know, I'm a believer that every leader in the organization is there for a reason and is there working for the company's uh, best outcome. And we, when you go that with that mindset, you're always in the listening mode of even if when you have a disagreement, you are in a listening mode because you know that am I not thinking about the company uh, outcome or or is it more like that is more important than what I'm thinking? Like, why are we disagreeing? So having that that mindset of listening and being open-minded. And also, you know, sometimes not worrying about every little detail, but looking at the big picture and say, okay, where in the big picture does this fit? And based on that, let's make the decision of like, let's move forward. Those are a few things and principally how I operate. And, and I've seen it, it helps or allows me to build better relationship uh, with my peers. And I always say to my peers, I'm here for us as a community to win. My win, your win doesn't matter to me. 
it truly, uh, I would say, builds that relationship of trust and and understanding that even we are dis- even when we are disagreeing, there's a reason to it. Let's figure out what the fundamental reason for the disagreement is. And few of those situations, you know, ultimately, of course, leads to trust. So I would say it's this was not the first oh wow moment. I won't call it oh shit, but oh wow <laughs> moment. Um, we have, there have been few. Uh, and when there have been few, we have built that trust and, and understanding of, you know, and respect for each other to know that, you know, let's trust, let's figure out, let's understand, let's listen to your other side. So you're right. It takes time. I would say from experience that the best time you build the deepest trust is when you are in trenches in solving something really hairy, I would say. You know, we have had those moments too. I mean, the company got acquired, uh, went through a big M&A. M&A is the biggest change management process, as you can understand. Um, so we have had a few moments where we had to address some hairy problems. So I think we have come a long way. I love it. The other element that you're talking about was communication. And the reason why I wanted to focus on this one was I was having a conversation with somebody who was in sort of like the executive search, executive recruiting space. And they were talking about, you know, some of the companies that they'd work with to place executives. And especially for tech executives, the number one quality that they were getting from the clients they were working with was communication in terms of leadership. Like that's the number one thing that they're looking for with folks. And I think there are two things I want to notice from our conversation so far. When you were talking about like this beginning moment of the shift, the first thing you defaulted to was like this mindset and mentality of great, we love solving challenging problems. This is an opportunity to do the thing that we love. And I'm like, wow, like what a first idea to go to in a moment of, of big challenge. And then two, with what you're talking about with like focusing on bringing people along and listening, like these are like all core elements to communication. I think they're so powerful. When you're getting ready to, to bring people along here in this moment, how do you approach communication here? Like what what are you thinking about informing your message and, and going into these different sort of stakeholders to talk about what needs to happen next? Look, look one, one thing with the change is that what there's this one communication about the change itself. And then there's other communication as to how does it impact people who are not in the circle of change, right? Uh, for example, in this situation, if we are changing or reprioritizing the product or, or any of the roadmap item, there's a change or the impact on the things that change. But there's also a communication that needs to go for the things that is not changing. And uh, what I observe usually is that there's certainly a good process or, or effort made to communicate what's getting changed to the people who are impacted by that change. But we forget the outer circle of the people who are not impacted by the change, but they also equally want to know because otherwise it creates anxiety or like questions or confusion or, or distraction just at the minimum, right? So there's both aspects of communication that needs to happen. Now within the comms itself, I mean, there, there are many things that played into the practice of what we have as, uh, you know, we have in, in, in engineering, we have a principle called write it down and we take it further and say, if it's not written, it didn't happen. So uh, uh, there's a concept of, you know, uh, any decision making also needs to write it down and, and decision needs to be, you know, written. Up. And that allows us, because we are remote and very geographically dispersed team, we want to make sure that everybody in any time zone can anytime read and contribute to that content as well. So having that practice in the organization helped because now, uh, like I said, we could figure out whichever roadmap is changing, what we could communicate there. The why was very clear and the understanding of the why was very clear. And we all believe in customer winning. uh, So there was no contention there. But also the people's roadmap was not impacted as to how will we move this project? What's the success of this project? How will we test it out? Because if I look back now, I will say there were moments where we thought that this will not impact a certain thing, but it did. We didn't think that it will impact our load testing team and take so much of their time. 
but it did. It took a lot more time than we anticipated, which meant that it impacted other projects. So it's important that we bring the people who are not impacted also in the process, because when they do get impacted by, let's say, an unexpected situation, it doesn't create any confusion. It just creates an understanding that, okay, it's unplanned, it happened, and we won. So it just creates, or you can say, keeps the chaos away. And when you, when everybody knows the why of what we are working on and why we are working on it or why we are, what we are solving it, it just allows everybody to even contribute. So there were a few other people who they saw the change we are making and they were able to contribute in a certain way to say, by the way, you're not thinking about this, but it can come in later. They were pulled in afterwards to say, well, tell us more, help us design this area. Uh, and they did a great job. So there's an aspect of communication, which is important, which aligns with transparency, which aligns with people to, to contribute to it later. And of course, takes away the chaos that can happen because with any disruption or new project uh, in the middle of the roadmap, you're planning with certain focus and it can have other tentacles that you're not thinking about, which always happens. The opportunity for other people who maybe initially weren't impacted to then all of a sudden come in and expand on the solutions or expand on like the the new prioritization shift. I think that's such a powerful moment to have folks identify needs that maybe had never been considered and to immediately Absolutely. provide an impact there. I think it's a really powerful, powerful story. I wanted to talk uh, a little uh, about a different element of of scaling. And that was around like the the concept of ensuring the right guardrails are in place while while this is happening. Mm-hmm. And so I was wondering if you could share maybe uh, your perspective on that and, and what that maybe looked like at Okta. I would say this is a very important concept of when we talk about, you know, high scale area and, and, and I've primarily worked on high stakes as well. So I can't speak to the non-high stakes one, but scaling and high growth in a high stakes environment, certain guardrails are very important. And I, I, I can tell you this, uh, if you have worked uh, with other technology leaders, which you have, I'll give you one example. The most common argument between a technology or engineering manager and a product manager, is this feature more important or this version upgrade more important? I can't tell you how many times I've heard it. And I can also tell you without going into any of those stories that every single time, business-wise, it's the feature that's important. But I'll also tell you every single time when we miss out on taking that version upgrade work in that moment, what happens is at, at the end of the day, we think it, we'll get to it, we never get to it, and we, we then we are running our infrastructure on an end-of-life version, and which is such a, such a dangerous place to be, especially in today's cybersecurity space, as you can think. And this is just one example. So it's so important that anything that's common argument or area of conversation, that we just create a guardrail or a process or a practice that we say, this is how we'll work. So that we are not having this constant conversation about simple things or most common things. Let's talk about something new. Let's talk about what's what more do we need to do. And that's the key for innovation as well, right? You're not busy talking about the same thing in five meetings. You want to talk about something new. So some of the guardrails that we have in place, uh, one thing uh, that was rolled out is we call it balanced portfolio, where we say, and I'm just giving an example, where we say our product engineering team will work 60% on product features, 30% on engineering efforts, and 10% on unplanned stuff. Um, and that has worked really well for us. We don't make it a very hard 30 not 31. I mean, we don't have that of hard of a number, but it's a directional number where we say operate that way, which allows us to keep our tech debt in check. It allows us to make sure that there's a rhythm in product delivery. And there's an understanding of like, we don't have to keep talking about version upgrades. Let's have that as part of the engineering roadmap. Now, there are times a certain service is not in a good shape and we have to have more engineering effort to get it in a good, healthy state. 
And there are times when certain product feature is just urgent because there's a big customer who needs it sooner and we have to, you know, pull some time. And those are all the time where we want to have a discussion. Okay, that's happening. It's a special case. Let's make certain decision. And you want to pull the right people in the room. Otherwise, things should be day to day. And and that's the goal of the balanced portfolio. The other concept we also have, I'll give you another example, which is we have a large team now and someone worked on a certain technology, likes to work on that technology and wants to bring that technology in. But maybe our DevOps has not created the automation for uh, using it and all. So how do we create and make sure this, these are all common cases and, and how do we make sure that it's guardrail so that we are not having constant conversation about it. So we also rolled out, uh, we call it engineering radar, where we have all the technologies listed to say it's totally okay to use, don't even think twice. And there are technologies where we say okay to use experimentally, but not in production. And then there are technologies where we say, no, we can't use it because we have already had some past conversation. We agreed that it will not be used. So that kind of radar is important because now if someone comes in and says, I want to use the technology that you said no, then you have to bring certain leaders in the conversation and say, let's talk about it. But otherwise, let's not waste time talking. Let's just focus on doing it. Um, so that's an important aspect. We also write our principles or best practices in our engineering radar so that people are mi- not missing out on those and it's top of mind. And it's, it works as a great, I would say, onboarding document as we bring in new engineers to align and say how I work or how we work. And writing it down is one of our principles that is also in the engineering radar. So like they get comfortable that blogging and writing about the work is absolutely okay and you don't need permissions. So I'm wondering about like how to how to set up and start building your guardrail. So would you recommend people to look at like the common discussions or maybe those common arguments that come up first track them and then figure out how you can build a guardrail around that? Would that be like the first step you'd recommend? I would say it's already understood what the common ones are. Uh, So starting from you don't have to bootstrap from looking at what the common conversation, I think you can bootstrap from what the generic stuff looks like, but also keeping it alive. So every quarterly, having make, making sure there are a couple of owners of it who bring in those other things to it. So we do look at what's a new technology we adopted and what is our guardrail or guidance around it. And we add to the document. At the same time, we also say that some new technology has been hard to maintain, hard to manage. I think it's time that we put a pause and putting more on this technology, so we put it on hold and we say, okay, we need to evaluate if this is the technology we want to continue investing in it or we want to bring in a new technology. So it needs to be a repetitive, you can say living document for sure, but bootstrapping it is not, I mean, if you ask me now, there'll be 50 that I can list, which is very common stuff that should go there and, and should provide a guidance. I was going to ask a follow-up question about like how to build your engineering radar, but I'm imagining like the steps are, are pretty much the, it's the same framework applied. Is that is that a fair assumption? Yeah, yeah. Same framework, right? It's, it's more like there are common things we know, version, conversation, tech debt, how do you manage your tech debt, what technologies to use. So these are all common and you just put all of that in a nice structured way so that anybody can find it, anybody can search for it and make it transparently available and make it part of your onboarding process and then keep updating it, keep enriching it. I think one thing that I do feel some people who, who ask about it from me is like they want to make it perfect and they, they're just taking six months to just create that. And my view is that just take a take few weeks and start somewhere, update it, add to it, but uh, don't 
perfected because perfection will come from the the usual increments and and reviews and not from like let's perfect and bring everything which is personally I'm, i don't even know if perfection exists some people might say they they have it but i don't that's how i would say you know start somewhere even if it's like two things or three things or just list the technology your devops team has fully interest, uh, you know in in your orchestrated for that's a good start then add it because, you know, it just feels common and just keep updating it. Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. I want to switch topics a little bit and dive into secure by design. And so I was wondering if maybe we could we could deconstruct what this principle is a little bit and how building Okta's new platform embraced this or embodied this in the in the process. And so Bhavna, can you introduce us? Secure by design, what is it? And then how did this get applied with Okta's new platform? So before that, let me tell you something that we believe internally and we talk about internally is something we say, which is, you know, security is not a feature for a product. What we build is a secure product, which means that our product needs to be secure from the get-go, from the ideation itself. And if you think of secure by design principles, if you deconstruct it, primarily what it does is it, it speaks to the approach that you should have in your development process. It could be software or hardware, but making sure that you have the approach itself of a wave that you start early on with the very mindset of your development to start thinking about security aspects of it as a concept and make sure that it flows through every development life cycle. As you know, you know, software development life cycle gets talked about. So every step of as you're developing, that concept of security is flows through. So when you think about that, that at a very high level and in a, in a generic term, you know, that's the concept of secure by design, which is from design to the release you think about security. And and it's important, as I said, because we believe that we are building a secure product. That's what the goal is. Again, going back to the statement that I mentioned, which is we are the front door of all other applications. So we have to make sure that we are holding to all security principles uh, and, and be part of it. Uh, because, you know, if the front door is breached, then, you know, then there's not much uh, behind the scene, right? Um, so that's how we think about it. That's how we operate. Um, so when I when I say secure by design, that's what I'm talking about, which is it's part of your design, your architecture conversation, your testing conversation, your release checklist, and, and everything in between. And that's what we have in, in our team, which is we start the design or the our project design or product thinking, and we have a security person, person participating there to think about how are we building, or do we have the right knobs? If this happens, how will we stop it? And that allows us, I'll give you an example, uh, because you asked Patrick, we built a new platform for hosting our, our product. And uh, as part of that platform, we followed the secure by design principle. And when we launched the platform, there was a final audit and and of course, certification process. And we had very minimal critical or high vulnerabilities in that process because we started the whole thinking 
through the secure, secure by design concept. And as we saw those vulnerabilities, they were very easy for us to rectify because we had all these knobs in place because, again, we have a security architect as a partner in that development. The way I see it, you know, making this extra effort of ensuring that you have this concept in your development process allows you to, again, move faster and have a faster time to market because now, you know, you're making sure that uh, you're adhering to all the security needs. Plus, you know, when you are ready to launch, you have already taken care of most of the things that your launch process can be much faster. Illustrating the involvement of the security team or security architects, both in ideation and then in all of the resulting product development conversations, I can see how that can entirely change like the direction, like the fundamental direction of, of a product, the foundational parts of it. What were the challenges with this process of secure by design in terms of building out this new platform? You know, the challenges primarily is that, especially if it's a new concept, people or the team might be, okay, what are we doing? We don't even have an understanding of this, but why are we thinking about security and all? But as they come to the pro through the process and they come to the end, they they start to value as to, okay, thank God someone else thought about these area. And now we are in a place where it's much better or we don't have to rethink it or we don't have to pause our release and and, and solve for it. So the challenge is primarily is, is more of like adoption uh, if it's the first time. But otherwise, you know, the challenges are less about the concept. The challenges are more about solutioning. So if, so if, a, if a security person is bringing up and saying, we need to solve for this early on, or we need to have a knob or some kind of ability to turn it around early on, then it's more of a building or solutioning that idea or architecture uh, and less about uh, a challenge. What were some of the, the challenges that you encountered throughout the process? You know, the way I see this process is more like, you know, when you bring a different process the first time, the challenge primarily is the adoption of the process, right? Uh, when you bring in a security person in the conversation of design and product development, um, now you have another person who's talking about additional requirements, you can say, or additional ways of building and architecting the, the technology. When it's the first time, it's the adoption of that idea because... Any added work is a delay, you can say that, you know, a, a larger or longer timeline. But I would say from experience, even in the middle of that process, when we first brought that in, um, there was huge adoption because we were already ahead in terms of building the right way uh, rather than building it and then changing it and, you know, making it work. Because at the end of the day, well, for us, as we say, you know, we are a product that that is secure or we are a security product. But for even other companies, cybersecurity is top of mind for everyone. So at the end of the day, we have to make sure what we are rolling out is fully secure, meets all the expectations of the rollout and release. But doing it early actually saves time. It's a wrong mindset to say that, oh, we're adding something new, so it's going to make the time longer. Actually, it actually saves time because you're already in the process of development, fixing, doing it the right way, building the right knobs. So when you end you actually have done two parallel jobs rather than one after the other. And it also does an extra, I would say, a learning thing, which sometimes teams miss, which is when you have a person with a security hat in the conversation, the end product, of course, is much better, but also the people who are experiencing and building relationship with this person, they take so much learning of, okay, this is what it means to build and think about security. This is what it means to think and build about compliance expectations and all of that. And they take that learning. What, what it does is the next time these engineers are working on the next project, they already come with some learning. They already come with some awareness. You don't have to reteach them. And then they're going to take more learning. So 
you know, there's a, there's a very common saying in the security space, which is security is everyone's responsibility. Well, how do you make it everyone's responsibility without giving them a closer view of what it looks like? And I think that's what I like about this concept of secure by design, which is it allows you to do that. And as engineers who are not in security space, also are taking the learning, getting better, more aware. And what it at the end does is when these security folks are not in a certain project because, you know, you can't just scale and have them in every project. The engineers can question and say, this is the moment I think someone needs to come and tell us something. And they they are able to make those right calls as to, one, they need a security person to come in and review something, and one, they don't need it. And that's what we are trying to build when we say security is everyone's responsibility, because at the end of the day, security talent is not something that's available all the time. So how do you make sure that you bring that awareness training and make it everyone's uh, leaning and responsibility to play a role there? The thing that jumps into my mind is like, this is the process to build the security neural net. And beyond that, it also seems highly efficient in that you're building with the secure by design principle and you're spreading a more sustainable security mindset throughout the entire company as a part of this one particular project. So it's like, I guess, just doing a more effective and efficient way of, of changing mentality or culture within, within the company. I really like the way you put it, Patrick. Bhavna, I have one more question. I really wanted to ask you about the role of security leaders working directly with customers, because that's not a relationship that would probably be assumed common. Um, and so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, about what that was like and the impact that that had. Yeah, and, and it's not just security leaders, right? It's all of us, all leaders, technology, product, Understanding the customer side of the story is so important because as we are building products and technologies and platforms and the way we are rolling out, having a view as to who are we rolling out is so important to make sure that we are nailing it every single time and making sure that we are delighting our customers. And that comes from, you know, starting to have a conversation with users. We have a very big developer community that we lean in and reach out as well to understand what we are developing, how is it going to be perceived? How is it going to be used? How is it going to be leveraged in their space and system? And it also helps us prioritize sometimes because we might think of certain priority, but because we have more customers and users who are pained by a certain way of doing things, maybe we need to prioritize something something else. So the role of uh, a technology leader in this space is very important to have that direct customer relationship to do a few things, I would say. One, bring those customer stories and pain points directly to your engineers, because that's the fuel of why we are building something. And that's the motivation factor. You know, I personally, I feel like if I'm motivated to do something, it doesn't matter that the hours, you know, the days and all, like I'm just, I'm just driven by the value and the outcome. Uh, so that's very important. The second aspect of when you're talking to your customers, and you're bringing those stories is also your own understanding of defining your product. As I said, many times we have to go into the conversation to say, how are we prioritizing it? Is everything important? Is something important? Is few things important? That's a big aspect of understanding when you're prioritizing. And you can only know that if you have a relationship with customer. Uh, a good example was our scaling uh, solution as well. And the third one is that keeps you close to the trends, right? If, if you don't know where your customer is going or what are the pain points that's coming their way, how will you innovate in your product to say, what's the next big thing we're going to solve? 
we are not in the world or space where we can just do our own thing in a corner and people are just going to be like, oh my God, that's what I want. I mean, maybe there are a few products like that, but that's not most products, right? The most products are about understanding the pain point, understanding the problem space, and then bringing that in terms of a solution. So we can only innovate if we know what is it that's touching our customer, what are the trends they are seeing to bring back into the product. Wonderful. Bhavna, are you ready for some rapid fire questions? Oh God, okay. All right. First question. Hope they're easy. <laughs> Let's do it. What are you reading or listening to right now? Recently, I worked with my team on this, the six types of working genius. We were, we spent a good amount of time on understanding the, the each concept. Uh, we just did our offsite and we, we, I did that with my engineering leadership team and um, fun understanding of how to perceive certain things. And I think that's another way of building that understanding and trust and say, now I see why you operate in this way. And, and which means that it gives me a, a way or pathway or roadmap to see how I can work well with you. Um, so that is something that we did just last month. Fantastic. Second question, Bhavna, what's a tool or methodology that's had a big impact on you? I think the concept of why I think this was uh, laid out by Simon Sinek sometime many years back. And when, when I heard him, I said, yes, that is what helps me. Because if I know what I am doing and why I'm doing that, when I know the why, there's a certain genuine, you can say, hunger to actually get there because I really want to get there for getting the why outcome. Until then, it was a thing that would inspire me, but I, I moving forward, leveraged that to say, I need to share the whys just as it inspires me to also share with my team to make sure that they, if, you know, hopefully many others are inspired by, and I've seen that enough people, they love the why, they love to know why we are working on something because then they bring their own other creative ideas to solve it even better. So I would say the story of, or the principle of sharing why is such a powerful method to align and of course rally behind. I will I will echo Simon Sinek. I feel like it's had a foundational impact on myself as a leader. So um, I, I love focusing on starting with why as a tool as like the one that's had a big impact on you that resonates really deeply. What's a trend you're seeing or following that's been interesting or hasn't hit the mainstream yet? God, you can't say that it, it hasn't hit the mainstream. It has only hit the mainstream, which is the, the generative AI. Uh, that's the trend I'm following. That's a trend. Uh, we, my team is also doing multiple ideation and proof of concepts. Uh, there's so much we can do in this space, primarily in the space of also improving our productivity or ways of working and, and efficiency, but also in the ways of, you know, we are in the space that we also have to watch for bad actors kind of leveraging this technology in an innovative way. So how can we come ahead of it? So both aspects is what I and my team are evaluating and certainly a trend to watch for. Fantastic. Last question, Bhavna. Is there a quote or mantra that you live by or a quote that's been resonating with you right now? I think um, the most common code that I use right now is write it down. And if it's not written, it didn't happen. That's something that we leverage every day, pretty much. And it has really done wonders for our highly, you know, geographically dispersed team. And I, I really value how far we have come in embracing that process, or you can say principle. I will say that if you are a remote team in a, in a dispersed organization, I think valuing the culture of writing and sharing that writing and how it brings everyone together is such so valuable. A powerful way to close off our conversation. Bhavna, just thank you so much for joining us, uh, sharing stories of high stakes, scaling, deconstructing, secure by design. This has been a lot of fun. Uh, thank you. Thank you. 